This morning's reading comes from Luke 19, verses 11 to 27, which can be found on page 878 of the Church Bibles. As they heard these things, he proclaimed to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave, gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was severe, a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Thank you. And please keep that passage open in front of you. And we're on page 878. That will help me a lot as we go through. But let me lead us in prayer first as we turn to God's word. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you'd help me to be faithful to your word and help all of us to listen with open hearts and ears and so be changed personally and as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are times in life where we have a moment, a moment to think, pause, reflect, take stock, perhaps, In those moments, sometimes we think to ourselves, where is my life really headed? I mean, am I really headed anywhere or just kind of drifting on the ocean of life a bit aimlessly? Now, I do realize for some of you students, that moment is not now. I realize exams are on and you might have nothing else on your mind apart from the impending doom of that. Or not doom, sorry, it's not necessarily doom. Um, (laughs) uh, But actually... What Jesus says today is as relevant for the busy patches as it is for the times to reflect. And you'll need to think about this afterwards anyway, so you might as well listen today. There are times, aren't there? It might be in a pandemic, actually, times when people just have a reflection to themselves. Where is my life really headed? The traditional cliche is it's the midlife crisis moment. A few decades of adult life is just long enough to realize I'm not quite living the life I'd hoped for whether the job is not as satisfying as hoped or the family situation not as happy or the body aging and the dreams fading. 
But actually, it's not just a midlife thing. Uh, lots of friends of mine in, who've retired have said, uh, when full-time work stops, there's often a time of real adjustment, of kind of reflection. Well, what's my aim now? What's the next phase of my life about? But it's not just a later life thing either. Um, so one of my friends at university became a life coach, like actually. Um, and apparently, he told me, there's such a thing as a quarter-life crisis. It's increasingly becoming a thing, apparently, um, where highly educated people in their 20s who've been promised the world then realize that actually it's quite hard to find a job and buy a house and find a community to belong to after uni. Well, then, whether it's early, mid, or late life, it's a good question to ask, isn't it? Where's my life really headed? Am I just drifting aimlessly on the sea of life? Well, this morning, Jesus Christ is going to tell us where every human life is headed in the end. He's also going to say that gives us great purpose to live with now. Where is every human life headed? Well, to a meeting with Jesus Christ. That's where we're all headed. And I don't just mean Christians are headed there, the people who are looking forward to that moment. I mean everyone is headed there. That's what Jesus says in this parable we've just heard. And again, this is relevant, whatever the situation. I'm aware there's a war going on in Europe right now. I'm aware there's a scary cost of living crisis. And it might sound, as we talk about the kind of meaning of life and purpose, it might sound like we're dancing on Maslow's pyramid, right at the top, thinking about self-fulfillment when people are starving and dying in Ukraine. But the reality is, what Jesus says here is as relevant to a war zone as it is to leafy Morningside. Every human life in this short chaotic, broken world, every human life is heading to a meeting with Jesus Christ. That's what he says. It's one of the great claims of the Bible, actually, that history isn't going around in circles, and it's not just chaos, it's not just sound and fury signifying nothing. No, it's heading somewhere, heading to a meeting with Jesus Christ, the judge of the world. We just had Easter, where Jesus backs up that huge claim with a huge miracle as he rises from the dead and proves that he's worth taking seriously. So let's dive into the, the um, passage. You'll see there's an outline uh, on the back of the service sheet, uh, and we've got three points. The first one is about the delay, the delay. This is our first point, the delay. King Jesus will depart for a while before he returns. Now, often Luke, when we, when we come to a parable, he often tells us a clue about how to read it just before it. So um, let me pick up the reading from verse 11 again. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. I think that's pretty clear, isn't it? The crowds are expecting something to happen immediately, the, the kingdom of God to come immediately. Uh, they're expecting the imminent arrival of all of God's promises. Jesus is saying, hang on, hang on. There's going to be a delay. That's what his story is about, a, a king who goes away for a while before he comes back to bring his kingdom and reign in full. Now, why were the crowds getting excited that this was about to happen immediately, the kind of kingdom of God coming in full. 
Well, because we've been on this long journey to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the royal city, the, the kind of place of promise where all of God's Old Testament promises about bringing his kingdom and fixing the world and doing justice, judging his enemies, all of that stuff was centered on Jerusalem. And they've seen that Jesus is definitely that king, the promised king. He can do things that no one else can. He can open the eyes of a blind. He can, he can cure a leper. Uh, he can heal a paralytic in front of multiple witnesses. So here's the king. Here's the royal city. We're getting closer and closer and closer. Surely this is the moment, they're thinking. And Jesus says, hang on. Just before we arrive, I need to explain something. You see, I'm going to depart for a while, then return. There's going to be a delay. Now, what is this delay that he's talking about in verse 12? What do you think it is? I mean, is it just he's saying, I'm going to die, so I'm going to go away and says I'm going to be in the tomb for a while, uh, two days in the tomb, and then on the third day I'll rise from the dead? Is he talking about that kind of going away and returning? No, I don't think it can just be his death. Because look, in verse 12, he says this nobleman goes into a far country to receive from himself a kingdom and then return. The story is talking about a long journey to a far country. And actually, when you read on, as we will in a moment, you see that there's lots of business to do with his servants beforehand. They must have time to do all that. So Jesus is talking about a long delay and then he'll return. Not just a couple of days between his death and resurrection, but actually this whole period of history we're in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That's what the story is about. What do you do in the meantime? So I was saying, we've heard, if you've been around, we've heard about this gap a few times. Chapter 12, Jesus said, look, it's like a bridegroom who's off at the party and is going to come back and as servants, you've got to stay awake until he comes back. In Luke 17, he said, uh, the son of man, the judge, that's him, is going to return. But in the meantime, life will go on as normal. People will be buying and selling and getting married. Just the normal stuff, eating, drinking. So we don't know the exact date, but we do know from Jesus there will be a delay. This long period before he comes back. That's the first thing the story clarifies. And I just think it's so helpful that Jesus explained this. I don't know if you, you can feel that yet, but, but I'm just so glad he told us what to expect, especially 2,000 years on, because that is quite a delay, isn't it? This explains so much for us. It explains why we don't see a world of peace and justice. We thought about this a couple of weeks ago. We don't see a world free from sickness and pain and death and war. Even though the king came, because there's a delay before he brings the kingdom in full. It's actually what should protect us from the false promises of the prosperity gospel, that if you just have enough faith, you will be healthy and wealthy and happy and have no problems in life. Or no, actually, because we're waiting for the king to come back. It's like um, in Lord of the Rings, we're waiting for the return of Aragorn. Only then will life bloom. Or in Narnia, we're waiting for the winter to end when Aslan turns up. And obviously, Tolkien and Lewis got their ideas from here. <laughs> so then, don't assume we have it all. That's one reason we're being told this. I think the other practical application is we can be certain this will happen. So I know there's a gap before Jesus comes back, but he did warn us of that. He told us there's business to get on with in the meantime, but I will come back. 
Let's just think how Jesus is doing in terms of prophecies in Luke's gospel. Uh, We won't do them all, but he said a number of things are going to happen. He said he was going to die. He told us where? Jerusalem. He told us at whose hands? The Jewish and Roman uh, rulers. Uh, He told us how? Mockery, suffering, pain. And then it all happened. That's his death. Uh, What else he predicted? His resurrection. He said, time frame, three days, then he'll rise. Place, Jerusalem. And it all happened. Multiple witnesses again. And there's a third prediction that he'll come back again. Yes, after a delay, that's what we're living in now, but he will come back, and we can be certain of that. That's our first point, the delay. What about what we do in the meantime then? This is our second point, verses 13 to 14. Um, The meanwhile, what should we be getting on with in the meanwhile? What's going to be happening on the ground? Well, in verses 13 and 14, we meet two different groups of characters. There are the servants in 13, and the citizens in verse 14. The servants are referring to Christians, to followers of Jesus, servants of the king. And it's just very, very clear that Jesus gives them a job to do. Verse 13, calling 10 of his servants. I think 10 is just a representative number. Uh, it's not 12, so it's not specifically the disciples, the, the apostles. It's just, it's just a typical number. It's just his servants, 10 of them. He gave them 10 minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. It's actually pretty simple, this. There's a command, engage in business. There's a time frame, until I return. And there's equipping, here's Amina, to do it with. So it really is the case that no church community or Christian life should feel aimless or be aimless. Jesus has told us what to do in the meantime. He told us to get on with his business. We're not just bunkering down as a holy huddle, waiting out the years until he returns. No, he wants us to be active, engaged, purposeful, doing his business. But here's the question, what is his business? To what end is this business we're engaging in? What is it? Let me say, the parable itself doesn't tell us. But as always with Luke, context absolutely does, and really clearly so. So just look one verse before our parable. So look at chapter 19, verse 10. The verse before our parable. um, Zacchaeus at this point has just become a Christian. He's just turned and trusted in in Jesus for salvation. Uh, As Jesus puts it, verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. And then Jesus tells us what his business is. Verse 10, for the Son of Man, that's Jesus, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is in the salvation business. That's why he came. And in fact, by this point in Luke, we have heard that so many times. He was announced as the saviour by the angels and the songs at his birth. Uh, He himself announced that he came to preach good news to the needy. We've seen it again and again. And notice how Luke ties verse 10 with our parable. Did you see that in verse 11? As they heard these things, he told them a parable. What things? Well, as they had ringing in their ears that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, he told them a parable about the king going away and entrusting his business to his followers. Do you see the point? 
My business is to seek and save the lost, and I want you to engage in my business until I return. It's not the only thing Christians do. Until Jesus comes back, we're to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. We're to praise, thank, love God, to look after family members. We're to love our neighbors. But it is the central business, the, the prime directive he gives to the church in this period of history. It's the biggest and best way to love our neighbor, actually. We actually saw it over Easter. Um, I don't know if you were still uh, with the series Four Days to, to, um, uh, that Changed the World, but when we got to Easter Sunday evening, Matthew 28, Jay was preaching on that great commission from Jesus, go and make disciples until I come back. It's just all over the Gospels, actually. Um, and, and it's all over in terms of both what Jesus' priority is and how it expands to us. So think in Luke. In Luke 4, Jesus said, I came to preach good news to the needy. And then in Luke 10, he's sending out his followers to preach peace to every household. Likewise, in chapter 15, we saw the prodigal son and the joy of the Father and, and heaven, uh, uh, even one person who turns and trusts and finds forgiveness in Jesus. And then immediately after chapter 16, the shrewd manager challenges us, will we put our resources to this great end? There it's financial resources, actually. Will we spend passing wealth to gain eternal friends? It's just all over the place. In fact, you may feel like, oh, we've heard this so many times in the Luke series. But that's the point. In lots of ways, this parable is summarizing what we've seen so far of the journey. It's the last thing Jesus wants to say before he gets into Jerusalem. And this is the point. There's work to do in the meantime. At which point, I guess some of us may be tempted to think, it's just not my thing. Like, it's really not me. I, I'm not particularly gifted in evangelism or apologetics. I'm not good at answering questions, or I'm not socially that able. I'm not articulate. I'm not persuasive, I'd say. Or I'm just not, I'm not a kind of bold person. I'm not, I'm not particularly fearless. I, I find it pretty scary. I'm not that kind of Christian. Let me say, if that's how you feel, you are really not the only one. I imagine most of us in the room probably feel like that. Um, I know even those of us up, up here feel like that often. I know I do. Uh, I'm, I'm more naturally introverted, and I find I really have to push beyond my comfort zone to speak to people I don't know that well, or people uh, I'm quite different to in terms of interests or, or, or background or lifestyle. I really have to push beyond the comfort zone, chatting to neighbours or parents at school or whatever. But if you're feeling like that, I've got one challenge from verse 13 and one encouragement. So here's the challenge, verse 13. In the parable, ten servants are summoned and all ten are given the task. Just like we saw last week at the end of Matthew's Gospel in the evening, the command goes out to all disciples to be disciple-makers every church, every age, until Jesus returns. That's the challenge. If we want to consider ourselves a Christian church here at Chalmers, well, then we need to do what Jesus says. And what Jesus says is engage in my business, the business of seeking and saving the lost until I return. That's the challenge. If it's making us shift nervously, there's an encouragement there in verse 13 as well. Because Jesus also equips each of the ten servants. He gives them each a mina. It's not go make some bricks without straw, 
No, it's I'm equipping you for this task. Every single servant of the ten is given a mina. And actually, at this point, I need to clarify. Um, this story is a different story to the parable of the talents. That one's better known, and it's quite similar. So you may have read this thinking, oh, yeah, I know this story. But actually, this is a different one. There are similarities about serving the master and him holding us accountable and things. But there's a real difference, because in the parable of the talents, the servants are given different amounts to begin with. That is, there's, a, there's an emphasis on the variety of Christian gifting, that we all have different opportunities, different situations, different gifts and capacities. That's the talents. But this is the minas. Here, all ten get one mina each. The emphasis is we're all involved and we're all equipped. What does the mina represent? I think most likely the gospel Every Christian is entrusted with this just amazing message, good news message, powerful, saving message of forgiveness in Jesus. I think that's the best single suggestion, but it could also be talking about the Holy Spirit. Again, every Christian is equipped with the Spirit to equip us for this great mission. More generally, every Christian is given one life, just one, to live for Jesus, to engage in his work. I'm not actually sure we need to choose between those. Uh, a parable isn't an allegory. You don't have to kind of decode every single bit. I think the picture is Jesus equips every servant for the work with the gospel, with the Holy Spirit, with a life. Actually, that should be a real encouragement because most of us don't feel up to it at all. But Jesus says, I've given you what you need. Actually, amazingly, every servant who even tried to, to engage with this, as we see later, saw amazing return. Turns out the spirit-empowered gospel is pretty powerful when put into the hands of the church. So then, that's the challenge and the encouragement. Um, and actually, even the challenge, in some ways, is quite helpful. I think it's just helpful that Jesus is just so clear about what we're about. Uh, we're going to, God willing, in autumn, move back into the building up the road, It'll be an exciting time, I'm sure, for us as a, as a church family. Uh, what is our new building for? What should we use it for? How do we prioritize what we do in it? Well, tonight we'll hear about listening to Jesus, and that will still be central, listening to him and his word. But this morning we're hearing about making disciples, seeking and saving the lost. That's a great thing to use a building for. And likewise, much more personally, individually, I think this is a wonderful purpose to have in life. We're surrounded by people who live for different things, aren't we? Many around us here live for their work. They put all their identity in that box. Because it doesn't help you when you retire. <laughs> or if you're struggling with unemployment, or with long-term illness, that means you can't work like others. Or actually, like the vast majority of us who are in a job that just isn't that great, like it's not that satisfying, it's hard, frustrating work. Others live for family, they find their identity in a relationship or with children. Again, if that's the highest aim of life, well then what about those who are single or widowed or childless? It, it can feel like my life is lacking purpose, I'm, I'm not really sure what I'm doing, where I'm going. Others live for holidays or hobbies or relaxation. 
not great unless you have loads of time and cash, of course, that one, and the health to do it. But Jesus says, actually, until I come back, here's the thing to focus on. Here's the thing to engage with in your life, to maximize your opportunities for seeking and saving the lost. Get involved with my salvation business. That's why the, the Tuesday night prayer meeting is great. It's why the, uh, being a partner, a member at Chalmers and kind of joining us in this work is great. Now, I do realize at this point, some of us may be thinking, oh, hang on, it's easy for you to say because you're a full-time gospel worker. You're, you're teaching the Bible and you're up here telling about Jesus. To be honest, for, the most, for most of us, we may feel like the opportunities to mention Jesus probably take up, what, 5% of the week? Someone earlier told me that's an overestimate. Maybe 1% of the week where you get a really clear opportunity to say something about Jesus. Maybe a good gospel conversation with a colleague or a neighbor happens, what, a few times a year? And so isn't it a bit discouraging, actually, if I'm saying that those tiny moments of life have purpose and all the rest of the time is just kind of pushing paper around? I think if we think like that, we haven't realized that there are multiple ways to be involved in Jesus' business. There are multiple ways to support this great gospel work of seeking and saving the lost. Not least, the work we're doing. Um, So financial giving, Jesus has mentioned it multiple times. Um, Actually, the reality is that if a number of people weren't doing normal jobs and and earning salaries and giving generously, this church couldn't do do half, less than half of what it does. It's not just finances, though, as we support gospel partners and staff members and those training and and, uh, ministries going on. It's also things like praying, So we saw earlier, again in the journey, Jesus encouraged us to pray, your kingdom come. That is to pray for the work of seeking and saving the lost. It's actually one of the great privileges of serving here at Chalmers is to know there are a number of Christians deeply committed to prayer. Some of them you haven't even seen because they can't actually make it to church physically because of health or old age. And they're deeply committed to the business of Jesus praying for the lost to be saved, praying for the church to be built up. It's not just money, it's not just prayers, though. It's also a voluntary time, giving of, of time and gifts. We were praying early for impact, an outreach group for young people. That only happens because people volunteer to serve and, and teach at it. Well, it's not just that. There's countless uh, roles, practical and, and, um, and Bible teaching, all sorts of roles to keep um, this great mission going. But it does also involve speaking, of course. And not just speaking as in leading Hope Explored or, or speaking up front, but, but, but just chatting in, in our relationships. All of us have countless contacts, friends, neighbours, relatives, children, countless relationships where there might be opportunities to live distinctively for Jesus and speak as opportunities come. And so Jesus asks very simply, with the one life I've given you, Equipped by the spirit I've put in your hearts and the gospel in your hands, are you engaging in my business? Are you making the most of it? This isn't necessarily a beat up. For some of us, this is just an encouragement. Keep going. I always think at the start of a new term, you need, you need a bit of that. <laughs> in various ways, we're serving in costly ways. It's good to be reminded, yes, this is worth it. This is what Jesus told us to do. Um, for others, we may need to change our priorities or, or shift what we focus on in life. 
That's, um, the, that's the command for what we should do in the meanwhile. There is one more thing Jesus says about the meantime, which is in verse 14. And this is where Jesus explains why we find it so hard. So I wonder if, I, as I mentioned, speaking for Jesus uh, in the world that doesn't, doesn't know him, I wonder if a bit of you thinks, oh, I really don't want to do that. I find that really hard. Well, here's why, verse 14. Jesus explains the atmosphere in which we do this. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Striking that. This was the true king. He was going to come back to reign, but his citizens hated him and didn't want him to reign. Again, that just explains the world we live in. That's what it's like. It's interesting, if you say to someone, well, kind of, Jesus is my hobby, and I quite like him, and if you like him, feel free to get involved, but, but take it or leave it, if it floats your boat. Well, if we say that, then there's a sense that we're just a harmless irrelevance, and wider society can say, well, that's nice for you. But what the Bible actually teaches is that every human life is on a collision course with King Jesus that everyone will be held accountable to him. And if we share that, well, that's when the discomfort, the offense comes. Notice this, this rejection of the king doesn't actually change the facts. So they're called his citizens. That is, he's still their ruler. and Their, their opposition will be futile. It won't change rea- reality. At the end of the story, they will be held accountable for, for a kind of insurrection against the king doesn't change the facts, but it does make it hard to engage in the business. Tempting to not do it, actually. Whether as a church, we could just focus on ourselves, or as an individual. Which is why, thirdly and finally, and more briefly, we do need to see a, the return of the king. This is our third point, verses 15 to 27, the return of the king, where Jesus holds everyone accountable for their attitude to him. So verse 15, the king returns. The first order of the day is to find out how his servants got on. Um, It's it's the kind of uh, assemble everyone in the boardroom to meet Alan Sugar kind of moment. How did you get on with the task I gave you? Except, of course, it's not a boardroom, but a throne room. And it's definitely not Alan Sugar. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your minas made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servants. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. It's actually an amazing generosity. I don't know if that struck you, maybe not. Um, But amazing generosity in the reward Jesus gives. Um, Amina is about three months of a laborer's wages. Um, So let's say uh, they had 100 quid and they made 1,000. That's what they came back with in all this time. And the, the king, Jesus, says, amazing. Why don't you become the mayor of Glasgow and Edinburgh and Aberdeen and Dundee and Birmingham and Liverpool and Durham? It's extraordinary, isn't it? Ten cities? It's out of all proportion. But that's what Jesus is like. He's not, he's not some kind of, kind of greedy venture capitalist, kind of, oh, brilliant, I'll grab my money back, my investment and my profit, tiny cut for you. No, he's generous. The servant actually keeps the minas. We find out that at the end of the story. So here, you keep my original amount, keep the extra, and here's 10 cities to be responsible for on top. It's just amazingly, judge, it's amazingly generous in his judgment. 
When we think about that day, we stand before Jesus. Real servants of his don't need to worry as if he's going to try and catch us out. No, he's waiting to generously reward. And the thing about the second servant I love is you don't have to be like a tenfold success story to experience that kind of generosity. So the second servant, he started with the same amount, Amina. He got to work, he engaged in the master's business as commanded, and he just didn't see as much growth as the first one. Just fivefold this time. And yet still the same generosity. You ought to be over five cities rather than, huh, (laughs) is that it? Wonderful, generous wild upgrades and promotions and rewards of this increased responsibility in the new creation. It is wonderful. It should motivate us as believers. If you're a Christian, Jesus sees it all. What's behind the scenes? The unseen prayers, the unseen, unspectacular chats with friends, colleagues, neighbours. But then there's the third servant who does stick out like a sore thumb, doesn't he? He has completely ignored the master's command. Just look at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Now we did see what the command was, didn't we? Engage in business. And yet this guy has just completely disobeyed it or ignored that command. When we hear his excuse, we quickly realize he's lying, actually. Verse 21 For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now already that doesn't sound anything like what we've seen of the master, the one who generously rewarded the other servants so abundantly, one who let them keep the mina and the profits. It seems like this third servant doesn't know the master's character at all. But worse than that, he's actually lying He's making an excuse that just isn't true. And that's what Jesus, the Jesus figure, the king, points out. Just look at this, verse 22. If he'd really been scared of the king, he would have done something. So verse 22, Jesus said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interests. The king is saying... You're lying. Your behavior is not consistent, actually, with what you're saying. You either didn't expect me to 